This morning we come to the second in a series of messages from Isaiah chapter 55, and I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to that Old Testament prophet, the sermon series titled The Great Invitation. The preaching text this morning is verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 55, and for the sake of uh, putting these in context, we'll go back a verse and begin to read at verse 3. Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call nations that you know not. And nations that you knew not shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. What we saw last week in this amazing invitation in the first three verses of Isaiah 55 was that God invites thirsty, bankrupt, frustrated people to come drink water, milk, and wine. He invites us to come drink the water of His grace that I think is intended to signify a quickening and a refreshing when we're dry and dead in Death Valley. He invites us to drink uh, the milk, which I think is intended to signify what strengthens and what carries you over the long haul of nourishment and growth. And He invites us to drink His spiritual wine, which signifies the eye-brightening exhilaration of knowing the Almighty God and having an everlasting covenant with Him. And He told us that it's all free. Come buy wine and milk without money and without any price. Although we saw from Isaiah 53 and we saw at the Lord's table this morning, it was bought. Though you and I could never buy it, it was bought. So we, we buy it in the sense that we believe the buyer. When you enter into the store of God's beverages, you buy in that you bank on the buyer. But it's free to you. Then we got to verse 3. And behind all the imagery of water, milk, and wine, I suggested that the reality that's being spoken about is covenant love. Let's read that verse. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And then the last line of verse 3 makes clear that we understand the extraordinary nature of this promise and covenant. Namely, it is the very kind of covenant... Or in a sense, we are being included in the very covenant that God made with, with David, his beloved. The steadfast, sure love for David. Now this is an amazing promise in verse 3. It's held out to you this morning. Every person in this room is offered the promise of Isaiah 55 verse Three, you can come this morning and say something like this. Let me try to verbalize for you 
what I think you would be saying if you were accepting this invitation with some understanding. I think you'd say something like this. Oh, Lord, I have learned through reading the Bible or through the hearing of the preaching of the Word that you promised to your servant David an everlasting throne of triumph. You promised to be a shepherd, to lead him by green pastures and by still waters. You promised to lead him in paths of righteousness and to take care of him when he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. You promised so much to intervene between him and his enemies that he could spread a table before them. You promised to pursue him with goodness and mercy all his days and to enter into the house of the Lord forever. And now on the authority of Isaiah 55, 3, I claim my stake in that very covenant with David. I am secure under that everlasting throne. I have green pastures. I have still waters. I will be safe in the valley. I will be pursued with justice and with goodness and with mercy all my days. I will enter into your house forever. I believe it on the authority of Isaiah 55 verse 3. I hope every person in this room, in your heart, is saying that covenant. That's kind of your side of the covenant. Faith in the promise of God. Now, you might ask, has God been faithful to that covenant? Has he been faithful to the covenant that says there will be one who sits upon the throne of David, rules over the house of Jacob, whose kingdom will never end and the extent of his government will have no boundaries? Has he been faithful to that covenant promise? The answer is given in a very, a very sweet, tender, small encounter between an angel and a virgin. And it went like this. Behold... You shall conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. I believe that the covenant made with David with its stunning promises which include all those who accept God's invitation is fulfilled for us in the son of David who took his throne or his seat upon the throne of David and no one will knock him off the throne nor will he ever die he cannot die again therefore he reigns forever and all the covenant promises made to David are made secure by Jesus who bought those for us at Calvary and secured them by taking the throne in victory at Easter and the Ascension. So there's a lot more going on here than even Isaiah knew the details about in verse 3. Jesus Christ is the Son of David, and He has secured for us the covenant that was offered to us here. And I, I just ask you this morning, are you looking for something solid in life? Something secure, unshakable, unchanging that won't let you down? And I just can't imagine anything more unshakable 
than the covenant promises of God promised beforehand, secured in the death of Jesus, and guaranteed by Him as He reigns supreme and eternally at God's right hand. I mean, we're talking about security, unchangeableness, fixedness. We're talking about us little trees sending down roots far beneath the sand of the Minnesota topsoil into the boulders of God's grace under which there flows a river of grace and drawing up the sap of water, milk, and wine until our branches are strong and come what may, we bear fruit. Um, Three Sundays ago, was it? We hit 104 at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The little tree in my front yard that I planted two years ago went crackle in one hour. It was such a pretty little tree. I'm still hoping it'll hang on. But all the leaves are crackly now. I saw it happen. It was one hour. Crackle. You know what happened? I dug the hole for that plant. I remember what was down there. About six inches of topsoil, about 12 inches of clay, and sand as deep as I could dig. It just couldn't get deep enough. It's too young, too weak. I'm offering you a covenant relationship with God that means when you just send your roots down around the boulder of His grace, 104 degree heat, hurricane winds, you will stand. And I know that there are many of you in this room who are just longing for that kind of sturdiness in your life, that kind of stability and firmness so that it's not this way and then this way and then up and then down and then fail and then succeed. You want something really strong underneath. And this is it. Isaiah 55, 3, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David and for the son of David, my son, Jesus Christ, says the Lord. Now, right here, we run into a question, crucial question. And many Christians, thousands of Christians and thousands of churches in this land never even pose the question. The question is this, will we take these covenant blessings and sit down in our churches and in our houses and enjoy them and have satisfaction with our water, milk and wine? Or will we be dissatisfied until there are beneficiaries of this covenant from every nation, tribe, people and tongue on this planet? There are churches in this country, thousands of them, who never even raised the question of world missions. It isn't on their agenda. And not surprisingly then, not on the agenda of people who go to those churches. So I want to ask you, are you going to be this morning among the number who say, look, I can barely keep my nose above my hometown water. I can't handle another mission's weight on my head. I will go under. There are thousands of people who simply won't deal with it. And so I would just have to snip verses 4 and 5 out of this chapter. Pull it out and we'll just enjoy, like they say these days at restaurants. Enjoy. But I want to say something by way of preface to verses 4 and 5 that I hope will change the whole imagery of a weight on your head as you're sinking in water. 
Let's picture a train instead, okay? Train. A boxcar is a blessing. This boxcar is full of water, ice cold. Anytime you're riding this train of grace. This one's full of ice cold water. This one's full of milk. It never goes sour. And this one's full of wine. Now, I want to tell you that world missions is not a burdensome caboose on the boxcars of blessing. It isn't. I want to argue before we're done this morning, it is the boxcar of wine. If there is water to give us life, if there is milk to give us strength, the wine of life is the cause of Christ in this world. In 30 or 40 years, by God's grace, when I don't have anything better to do or no strength to do it, and I sit down to recollect the grace of God in the chapters of my life, I'm going to date one of the most thrilling chapters beginning October 1983, when I preached my very first sermon ever on world missions called Missions, the Battle Cry of Christian Hedonism. Up until that time, during our missions conferences, I was never asked to preach. So we had guest speakers. But it's very dangerous to ask your pastor to preach about missions. Things begin to happen. I will date a chapter in my life from October 1983, and I will call it the Chapter of Exhilaration. As I have grown deeper and seen higher and enlarged my vision about what God is up to in this world and started changing my reading habits and my conference habits and my tape listening habits and my travel habits and my prayer habits and everything begins to change and wine makes your eyes glow when it's the wine of the world mission of Jesus Christ who reigns upon the throne. It is not a burdensome caboose. On the end of my train, it is a box car full of blessing. Or if I work on this analogy a little longer, I'll get it up to the engine somehow. <laughs> so I want to shift. I want to. I want to relieve you from the start. And by the time we're done, I think you will feel relieved and thrilled. Quite apart from whether you go as a missionary or not. Let's go to verses four and five. And watch the prophet Isaiah, 2,700 years ago, unfold for us the word of God concerning God's global purpose. What I see in these two verses is two purposes of God and three means by which he will achieve those purposes. So let's, let's go to the purposes first. We'll jump right to verse 5 to start with. Purpose number one that God has is that unknown nations be called to the banquet. That unknown nations be called to the banquet. Verse 5, first line of the verse. Behold, you shall call nations that you know not. Now, God could see a lot farther than, than the Jews in those days. He could see people living in North America 2,700 years ago huddled around their fires and living in their caves. He could see the Chinese with their astonishing culture 2,700 years ago. He could see Aborigines probably in Australia 2,700 years ago. He could see Indians high in the mountains of Peru 2,700 years ago. 
Now, the people who had accepted his invitation that he's talking to here couldn't see any of that. They were not known, he says. And yet, he says, they will be called, and you will call them. Now, what ought to blow the socks off of every Christian at the end of the 20th century is that this fulfillment is at hand. Isn't it remarkable what, what Isaiah here calls unknown peoples is, is at front and center stage in virtually all missionary dreaming today. They call them hidden peoples, unreached peoples, frontier peoples. Isaiah calls them unknown peoples. It's all the same. And the point is, God knows every one of them. Whether it's 16,000 or 9,000 or 3,000, God knows them. He knows what His purpose for them is. And His purpose is that they be called by you, it says. The you in this text, I believe, is the people who've accepted the invitation of verses 1 to 3. You will call them. So that's purpose number one. Though we don't know all about the peoples... There is an incredible growth of research and study and effort to identify those peoples today, so much so that there's no excuse that we can't target them and go call them, according to this text. That's purpose number one. Purpose number two in this text is that God's or that the people, peoples, will respond. And come, let's just keep reading in verse 5. Behold, you shall call nations that you know not, and nations that knew you not shall run to you. That's response. God does not purpose world missions merely. He purposes successful world missions. He doesn't merely mean that there be a testimony among the peoples. He means that among the peoples, some will run to you. Two purposes. That the church call the unknown peoples of the world and that those unknown peoples respond. Look at verse 11. Um, in verse 11, it talks about My word shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose. You see why God can be sure that his purpose, that they will run, will be achieved? His word is omnipotent. He accomplishes what he intends by his word. So those are the purposes I see in the text. That the unknown peoples be called and that they respond. Now... How is that going to get accomplished? What does God intend to do or what has he done to bring this about? And I see three answers to that question. The first one is given in verse 4. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Now, who is he talking about there? Well, verse 3 says, David... My steadfast, sure love for David. And so someone might answer, well, simply referring back 300 years to when David was alive and God made him a witness. He wrote a lot of songs and poems, and so he had a witness with his word. And he was a leader and commander. 
and uh, not only over Israel, but uh, he conquered the Philistines and had some dealings with other people. And so he's talking historically about David. Now, I tried to be happy with that, but there's some things about this text that make me unhappy and um, dissatisfied if we limit our interpretation to saying that the person in view in verse 3 is simply King David, 300 years before. The reason is because not only is there a close connection between verse 3 and 4, but there's a close connection between verses 4 and 5. Real close. And the, the link between verses 4 and 5 is uh, twice the peoples are referred to in verse 4, and twice the nations are referred to in verse 5. There's a concern in these two verses with the peoples, with the nations. And, and then you notice in verse 5 that it's all future. These peoples or these nations are going to uh, be called and they are going to come. Now, if you sort of read backwards in the text then and you come to verse 4, it, it doesn't seem to be adequate to say this is just referring to something that happened 300 years ago during the time of David while he was king and was doing his military exploits as a leader and commander. That just, there's not enough to that to satisfy the demands of this text. And so, I just reflected prophetically like this. Could it not be that the, the view of Isaiah and of God speaking through Isaiah is broad enough to say that what God began with the covenant with David, he finished with the son of David, Jesus Christ, so that really what we have in view in this witness, this leader and this commander, is not merely King David 300 years ago, but the fulfillment of the covenant made with David in uh, what 700 more years Jesus Christ. And then I, I went back, for example, to chapter 9 of Isaiah, and I read these words. Of the increase of his government, referring to the Messiah, the coming one, Jesus. Of the increase of his government of, of peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so I have concluded... And I think with good reason that while King David is in view as the historical origin of this text's reference, it has a fuller meaning and should extend prophetically into the future to a testimony or a witness and a leader and a commander who will be involved in bringing the nations. And then I went over into the New Testament and I found some really interesting names for Jesus or claims of Jesus. For example... In John 18.37, Jesus said to Pilate, For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And then even more surprisingly, Revelation 1.5, John says, Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the leader of the kings of the earth. And that word leader there in Greek is the same Greek word in the Greek version of the Old Testament of Isaiah 55.4. And so I think there are clues enough before, in Isaiah 9, in the demands of verses 4 and 5 and the way they flow, and in the future, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the witness and the leader of the kings and the world, to say that this is prophetic and not just historical. That what we see in verse 4 
is that the first answer to the question, how is God going to call the peoples, is this. He will send His Son, the Son of David, who will be witness, and by His Word, and by His power in leadership, He will call the nations. He will be the banner that we lift up to the nations. He will draw the nations to Himself. So that's the first answer to the question. The word, witness, and the leadership power of Jesus Christ will bring the nations. Answer number two. You and I, who have responded to the invitation of verses one to three, will be used by Jesus to spread his power and his word. Now let's read verses or just the first line of verse 5 again. Behold, you shall call nations that you know not, and nations that knew you not shall run to you. In other words, the witness of Jesus will be heard in the word of the church as it calls. You will call them. And the power of Jesus in his commandership and leadership will be felt in the result of the people's running in response to the gospel. So Jesus doesn't do it by himself. Not one person in this world is saved by Jesus Christ without a preacher or a lay witness to the gospel. The word of the gospel or the word of Jesus comes through the human witness. Now, that means real practically for us here at Bethlehem that we ought to be engaged full tilt in identifying the unknown peoples referred to in Isaiah 55.5 and in praying for those unknown peoples and in sending people to call those unknown peoples. That ought to be high priority. No matter how many lost people are in Minneapolis. You know, I was talking with John Quam recently, who is the head of the Association of Church Mission Committees in this area. And we were talking about his mailing list for Prayer 88, which will be a great concert of prayer on November 18 at the Dome. You know how long his list of churches is in the Twin Cities? Almost 1,000. Churches. We're talking churches, not Christians. In this metropolitan area with its two million people, 1,000 churches. How can anybody stay here who's called of God to preach? I wrestle with that every single time I come up against a text like this. How can anybody graduate from seminary and look for a church in the Twin Cities? Charles Spurgeon said, you can't say to every Christian that you should go to the unreached. But you can say to every man who is called to preach the gospel, you ought to go to the unreached unless you're called to America. That I think we can say simply because of the incredible imbalance that exists. 1,000 churches in Minneapolis and St. Paul 
and suburbs. And not that many missionaries among 1.9 billion individuals among the Muslims and Hindus of this world. So, the second answer to the question, how is God going to do this? He's going to do it by sending people to call them. Last answer, and with this we close. Verse 5 goes on. Nations that knew you not shall run to you because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Now, what is that saying? Why are people running to the emissaries of the gospel? Why are people running to the people of God from the nations in this text? Answer, God has beautified the church. He has beautified His people. He has glorified them. He has decorated them. He has adorned them. What's He talking about? Didn't Jesus say the same thing in Matthew 5.16? A city set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand that it may give light to all in the house. Let your light so shine. That's glory, beauty, Adornment. Let your light so shine that men, nations, may see the good works of the church and run to them and glorify their Father in heaven. It's the same teaching. So you see, the, the, the two human answers to this question, we had a divine answer. I have made David to be a witness and a leader and a commander to the peoples, my son of David, Jesus. And now there are two human answers. One is, they will go and call with their word. And the other answer is, the church must become beautiful, holy and loving. Now this is so good. This is such a good place to end this morning. Because... It closes the circle of tension in the church in a most harmonious and non-competitive way. Here's what I mean. It, it closes the circle of witness and, and worship. It closes the circle of, of heralding and, and healing. It closes the circle of frontier missions and domestic ministries. You see it? This is a magnificent verse for a local church. Because what it says is that when I preach on world missions and ring that bell like I am this morning, the people who are not called to go should be able to sit there in the pew, listen with enthusiasm and say, Preach it, John. Preach it. That's why we're here. With no feeling of guilt. Because it says here that an utterly essential element in drawing the nations is that this church be healed, be beautified, be glorified, that we love each other, that we care for each other, that we become whole with each other, that we not be a closed and cranky and in-house community, but a wide-armed community for each other and for this neighborhood and for Minneapolis. It is essential from a missions perspective. And on the other side, 
when I take up texts that deal with love in the body, that deal with upbuilding and caring, that deal with worship, the people whose guns are all loaded for frontier missions should be able to sit there and say, Preach it, John! Preach it! That's where it's at! We must have that! It's all right there in verse 5. You will call them. You've got to go in order to call them. And they will begin to run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, because He's at work among you, glorifying you, making you beautiful, adorning the gospel, as Paul says in 1 Timothy. I hope, I hope that we can be known in the community for those two things. This church loves one another and loves its community. Students, lower income Phillips, business community downtown, suburbs. They love the Twin Cities and each other. And they have an incredible vision for these people they keep talking about I've never heard the names of. And they don't have to be intention. In fact, they must not be intention or we abort both halves. We will be inauthentic in our love for one another if we don't care for those who don't have that message that makes us love. And we will be inauthentic in our mission if we are broken in pieces and hating each other and collapsing and failing and dying at home. So let me sum up what I think the Lord is saying to us this morning from this text. He is saying, brothers and sisters, I intend that through you unknown peoples be called to the banquet. I intend that you be so beautified, so holy, so loving, that they will want to run to you and be part of your fellowship. I intend to do this by appointing my Son, Jesus Christ, as a witness to the peoples as an, and a leader and commander to the peoples, so that by His Word and by His power flowing through you, it will be done, for my Word will not come back to me empty. And I want to say, I think the Lord says, to join Christ in this great cause of world missions is not to put a burdensome caboose on the back end of the boxcars of blessing. It isn't. There is a boxcar full of water for refreshment. There is a boxcar full of milk for strength and sturdiness and durability. And you know what this other boxcar is full of? Wine. But you know what that wine is? That wine is being involved in the global mission of God. The reason I think that is simply because I have discovered personally that until you can rise to the level of seeing the world the way God sees it, until you can become thrilled with what God is doing in our day around this world to make the nations His own, the thrills in your life are little thrills. They're not up to the grade of wine God intends to give spiritually that makes your eyes glisten with the global purposes of the King. What I'd like to do here as we close is just give you a brief moment of silence in order to deal with God where you are.
Don't know where you are on the boxcars. Don't know whether you're coming, eating, buying, drinking, enjoying. I don't know whether World Missions is a threat or whether you're gangbusters involved. I don't know whether you're wrestling with a call to go or send. But you know where you are right now. Let's stand before we close in prayer. And now, Father, we unite our hearts together to thank you so much for water to give us life and milk to give us strength and wine to bring us exhilaration as we live for you and envision your closing of the gap in our day. And we just cry out that you would rend the heavens and come down, that you would pour out your Spirit upon our church, that you would call those whom you have appointed to be the callers of the nations, that you would call those that you have appointed to be the healers of the people, that you would bind us together in a in a wonderful harmony of ministry, that you would beautify this church for people to see, that you would open our arms to this community, that you would break us of all pride and selfishness and formalism and traditionalism that might hinder anyone from being a part of what you have offered to us and given us. And I just commend ourselves into your grace, Lord, asking that wherever we go or come this week, you might be there to open our eyes to the potential of what the water, the milk, and the wine could do for others. And all the people said, Amen.